this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Friday, November 9th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Do you know, going back to 1900, maybe further, I just went back to 1900, there were 13 times a president gets elected to find his party in control of the House of Representatives. Of those previous 13 times, nine times the president managed to hold the House during the midterms, and four times the president lost it. This time, Donald Trump lost more seats to lose his party, the House, than any Republican since Herbert Hoover. And for that guy, it was a certain crash that happened between his election in 1928 and the midterms of 1930. Now, George W. Bush is not in that category of president whose party lost the House the first time they voted after being elected. That happened the second time for George W. Bush's second midterm elections. And George W. Bush went out there the next day and he acknowledged defeat. The press conference that he gave is pretty much known for one word. It was a thumping. But I went back and I listened to it all. And the tone, the acknowledgement of reality from George W. Bush is so different from what we got out of Trump. I just couldn't believe it. Start with this. And they cast their vote for a new direction in the House of Representatives. And while the ballots are still being counted in the Senate, it's clear the Democrat Party had a good night last night. Trump never acknowledged this, never conceded anything. I appreciate the efforts they put in for our candidates. Trump did not do this either. He credited himself for the wins. He talked about the places that he campaigned, where his candidates won, neatly forgetting Montana, Nevada, and West Virginia. He mocked and ridiculed Republicans who were disloyal to him, never acknowledging that his loyalty test in South Carolina won certainly cost the party the seat. Same with the Kansas governor race. They ran a disciplined campaign. Their candidates were well-organized and did a superb job of turning out their votes. Trump didn't say anything close to this. If he couldn't even compliment people in his own party or console those who lost in his own party, he didn't come close to giving a compliment to the campaigns that were run by the other side and realized that the Democrats won 30 seats plus an independent, so they took 31 from the Republicans in 2006, And the Dems did, well, if anything, a little better this time around. It's a very fair comparison. Trump denied that there was an accomplishment. Bush took away this message. The message yesterday was clear. The American people want their leaders in Washington to set aside partisan differences, conduct ourselves in an ethical manner, and work together to address the challenges facing our nation. So when Trump was asked, because he didn't offer it independently, what lesson did you learn He said this. Well, I think the results that I've learned and maybe confirmed, I think people like me. I think people like the job I'm doing, frankly. Yeah. So, you know, in the Bush speech, the reason thumping was remembered was because it stood out. It was colorful. It was different from the rest of that Bush speech, which is pretty much just Derogore etiquette plus reality plus good politics. Any of those things would be real news today. One last George W. Bush statement from 2006. I've been around politics a long time. I understand when campaigns end, and I know when governing begins. Back then, such a simple statement of fact did not play as a glistening virtue. Today it would. On the show today, I spiel about this question. Who is this Mark Whitaker guy, and can he chip the linebacker, then run a simple out? But first... 
We did a live show in Brooklyn last night. The brilliant Jamel Bowie and Dahlia Lithwick were there. Jim Newell was there. Seriously, they all made me look good. If you don't believe me, listen for yourself. We'll play a good chunk of that up next. So I guess the big question for about 12 to 24 hours was, was it a wave? Was it an oscillation? Was it the kind of big sweeping wave? Was it a ta-ta wave? I would say it was a wave. I would say the Democrats should own it. I would not believe anyone who wouldn't call it a wave. So what we're going to do now, should I say hello? I'm Mike Pesca. This is Dahlia and Jamel and Jim. Each of us will hold forth about our impressions of the whys or the what nows or wherever else we want to take it. So this is called laying the predicate. And then I have some more specific questions. Dahlia, you may begin. Thank you. And thank you all for coming out. You know, this was certainly the only election I remember people, you know, Democrats being fired up about like state attorneys general races, you know, like (laughs) now we're talking about the state AG. And I was like, right, because this actually, as it turns out, really matters. But it does, in a weird way, I, I think lead us down this path of, you know, I remember Walter Dellinger who was acting Solicitor General under Clinton, What wrote this great piece for us a couple years ago just saying we are headed inexorably to red states and blue states, like to two Americas. And part of me just feels like there's something, I don't know, um, Jamil's going to tell me why I'm wrong, but there, there's something, no, you're right. there's something deeply <laughs> dispiriting very, very right. yeah. <laughs> about being like, okay, screw it, y'all. We're going to, you know, uh, good luck getting your abortion in Mississippi, but here in California, everything sparkles. I mean, it's... it's- here in California, we, we like give you abortion yeah. coupons. No, I mean, it's beautiful. And there's something, I, I, I see that that makes a certain amount of sense, but it, it feels a little hinky inside to say it. No, if, if, if you, I feel like if you are a, a liberal, a progressive, a leftist who has a vision of sort of like an American social democracy, it is a failure if we end up in a situation where state support is entirely patchwork or if you're lucky if really if you're lucky yep. enough to be born in california not texas if you're lucky enough to be born in maryland and virginia versus north carolina and south carolina then you'll have access to robust state benefits and if you're not then good luck you know i do think that there is as much um countervailing information about us trending towards red states and blue states. Because if I were to say over the last four elections, all right, tell me the states that are definitely trending red, you might come up with a bunch of these states in the industrial Midwest that just went blue. And if I were to say, all right, give me the state, I'll grant you the deep South, but give me the big state that's going to be red for a long, long time and pretty much be this uh, dug-in dictator of where we're going. Well, you'd say Texas, and there is a decent amount of information, although let's talk about that, that Texas, although there hasn't been a winner of a statewide race for the last 97 elections, like (laughs) you always hear it's since 1994, but I went and counted all the AGs, all the land commissioners, who's now uh, George Bush Jr. Every race for a court in Texas since 1994, uh, Democrats are 0 for 97. So let's stipulate that. But they're coming back, baby. (laughs) No, but it does seem that this... So again, my thesis is that are we trending towards red and blue? Quick, tell me the way the trends are going, and I think we have as much opposite information as we have confirming information. I mean, I 
you know, you can't say forever about anything, but for the, for the foreseeable future, we are getting redder and bluer. And you can just see that in the divergence between the House and Senate results. I mean, there was an overperformance among Democrats in some suburban districts, but there was a, like, a very big overperformance among Republicans in red states. I mean, all these polls that had Indiana and Missouri close, they were not close at all. And John Tester, he won, but he won by a smaller margin than he was projected to. Yeah. Same with Joe Manchin. Arizona's a lot closer. Florida, we don't really know what's happening in Florida, but it's definitely closer than the polls said. So, I, I mean, I, you know, if you look at states where, um, you know, sort of the percentage of the population that's white is sort of staying the same, not diversifying at all, those are becoming redder states. I mean, Ohio, you know, they elected Sharon Brown. Grant, he had a terrible opponent. I think he only ended up winning by five or so. I mean, that's a pretty red state. They picked Mike DeWine this year in the governor's race. I, you know, I wouldn't say that one's gone. It's still capable of electing Democrats, but I think it's in the lean red column now. Missouri is gone. That was a bellwether state for, you know, 100 years or whatever. It's completely gone. You know, a lot of the states. But Virginia was always a solidly Republican state. I know, and now it's a solidly South. blue state. Right. So what That's I'm capable s- of electing Republicans. So yeah, North Carolina's. Blue, yeah turning blue yeah granted the 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 diversification of the electorate might be the example but i you know i think that there are ebbs and flows and i also have this theory about i don't want to bore you with this this sounds like an excuse but the places where those democratic incumbents in red states got killed like missouri and indiana you know donnelly the only reason he's actually in the senate is they chose a terrible candidate with murdoch last time around and you know claire mccaskill do you guys remember in 2012 she wrote this article for politico how i manipulated the republican electorate to pick todd aiken because i could beat this tea, tea party monster so maybe they were only in there on a rented term anyway so, yeah, she was very happy with her tricks, and her tricks didn't really pan out. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one reason to be less optimistic, Mike, than, than you are is that, um, <laughs> is that, you know, American politics has always fallen along racial axes, but like we're sort of in a unique moment where explicit sort of like racial animus is part of the political conversation. I mean, I, I rewatched uh, the president's sort of closing ad on Tuesday and it's just like, it was like breath, breathtakingly racist, right? Right. Sort of, it was, it was a, it was a stone's throw. Too racist like, for Fox. Too I racist for Fox. That's the tagline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you have, you have explicit racism in the political atmosphere and it's what Trump revealed was a sizable constituency of Americans who that's something they want. Like for a long time, they couldn't get it. And so they kind of like, they voted for Republicans sort of disappointing. Like, oh, I really, I really wish Mitt Romney would talk about how, you know, the Mexicans are terrible, but he won't. I'll vote for him anyway, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Um, Remember Mitt Romney was, or, uh, Donald Trump was advising Mitt Romney to go into the birther stuff. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Trump if Trump has any real political genius, it's like recognizing what was essentially an arbitrage opportunity in the Republican Party. That like the 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 leadership was rightly avoiding sort of opening this Pandora's box of like awful race baiting and, and racial animus. But the base was like, no, give it to us. Like mainly like like inject it into our veins. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and, but and it's funny because I think the flip of that is the gender, right? Which right. is the other valence here, which is, you know, for all these seats that flipped go to women. Like, it's unbelievable. And and uh, I think it's the same principle. This is a Me Too election. This is, you know, more than 100 women, which is not enough, but it's 100 women. It's a big, big valence here is that this person who has explicitly been the most 
boggle-eyed misogynist that any of us has ever seen uh, somehow drives, you know, all these these women to say, like, okay, well, I mean, we, we have to talk about how women vote because I don't understand it at all. How uh, women vote? Is that like a Mel Gibson movie? No, it is. How, how do women vote? <laughs> men, men, are from, men are from Mars and women are from... But um, but I I do think that 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 confounds everything you're saying, Mike, because I think that the, there are just other axes at work in the selection that are that that sort of transcend red and blue, and that they very very much I think swamp any conversation about. And because the parties are becoming defined along these things, like it's no longer the case that you can be sort of like a racially conservative Democrat. Like either as a Democrat you're you're down for racial pluralism. Or you're not, and then you're a Republican. And if things are dividing that way, then states that have lots of racially conservative whites just are going to become more conservative. And if you have a president whose explicit campaign strategy is to sort of stir racial panic, then you're going to see that in those states, those voters are just going to come out and vote that racial panic. And there's there's no, you know, the, the, the reverse is is in suburban places, women and non-whites coming out to vote sort of an opposite vision. So it's diverging in a way that I'm not sure you can push back. I, I don't know how my metaphors are going right now, but you can't push back. <laughs> but I, I guess my question is just because Donald Trump put out that ad that um, Fox objected to <laughs> after airing it uh, many times, um, <laughs> just because he put out, does, does that mean he's right and it worked? What's the evidence that it worked? I'll throw this out there as a perhaps confounding idea. Let us stipulate that Andrew Gillum, let's not even talk about polls, he suffered from an overt racial animus. And yet the amendment to uh, give the franchise back to ex-felons in that state doesn't just pass, passes overwhelmingly. And by the way, that's going, you know, there's like 40% of the black men in, um, in Florida can't vote. That is going to be a huge boon to injecting the state with more of these black voters who you're also saying uh, will be the death knell of the very people and the candidates who the Republican Party backed. It seems at least a little more complex than uh, pure racism. I wouldn't look at that in isolation of the campaign that the organizers ran, right? The campaign the organizers ran was explicitly, this will help lots of white people. Like, I'm not sure that the fact that a bunch of Florida Republicans voted for it necessarily means that they recognize the long-term implications of it. And I think there is something to the fact that the, the simple fact that the amendment didn't have any sort of like black standard bearer helped its passage, right? There was no personality that you could attribute to it. It wasn't really connected to national politics in a way that Gillum was. Mm -hmm. I, I think in addition to race, there is a real sort of like trigger the libs uh, ethos among the Republican electorate such that any Democrat who becomes sufficiently connected to national Democrats gets hit with it. So, you know, Beto's an, unu an unusual case because I'm not sure he could have gotten so close if he didn't become sort of a celebrity, but it's certainly the case that you, he received, people voted against him because they were just like, I don't like the fact that Democrats like that dude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there's a uh, negative partisanship I, I, I'll say it on both sides, and 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 a lot of polls, <laughs> a lot of polls show that uh, Democrats have worse opinions about Republicans than vice versa. Well, that that's my you know my enduring question that I want one of you to to answer. 
in short declarative sentences, um, is, is, you know, how much Trump and Trumpism really was on the ballot, because that was certainly going into the election. You know, Trump really wanted this to be a, an election about Trump. It seems to me that, you know, on the left, I, I, I'm not sure we saw Democrats wholeheartedly, you know, engaging in, if, if one person in five marched, you know, where were they? So I don't know that the renunciation of Trumpism was, you know, the, the, the mandate here. And alternatively, I don't know how much Trump helped in some of the places where he endorsed that. I, I almost wonder if we're in this other universe where the, all the, the, the kind of oxygen in the room goes to this conversation about this was a referendum on Trump and Trumpism. But in a weird way, like much of what happened was not that or didn't feel like that. Mm. I don't know. I, that's that's just me spitballing. But I think um, I mean I'm inclined to think it's a referendum on Trumpism more than than it may feel. Just if you look at the coalitions, I mean this is the um, demographic shift that Trump started. I mean it began in 2016 and was just you know amplified this time. Suburban voters, um, white college educated women especially, were just left the Republican Party um, as they did under Trump, and then rural districts. I mean just really blew up for Trump and helped him win a lot of these Senate seats. So I know it's weird because you, you, you know, the, the demographics look like it was a referendum on Trump. Then you see the biggest issues that people are voting on. It's healthcare and Democrats were completely disciplined on healthcare. I don't really know how the two fit together. I mean, I think you can think of it as anti-Trump energy is sort of as like the ground level for being able to get this, the number of democratic votes necessary to win, right? Like in, um, the Virginia 7th District, which uh, Dolly used to live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. The 7th District is sort of like right over the border of our district. Dave Bratt, who is a Republican incumbent, lost to Abigail Spanberger, who is sort of a newcomer to politics, a former intelligence officer. And that's like an historically red district. It consists of lots of rural areas and sort of Republican-leaning suburbs. This was Eric Cantor's former district. Yeah. Right. There's, this was the one Eric Cantor lost in 2004, or 2014, rather. Uh, because he was too moderate. Because he was too moderate, right? Like he specifically, he liked immigrants too much. Yep. And Dave Bratt was like, immigrants are terrible. And then he won. Um, Eric Cantor didn't even like immigrants. I think there was yeah, one, there was like maybe one speech like in private where he said immigrants are fine. And like that was unearthed. <laughs> and that was the whole campaign. <laughs> but, so he lost to the George Mason professor who yeah. you could go to his class as an immigrant whose campaign was immigrants are terrible. Right, right. Just, the, just the George Mason that, professor yeah. who had like a weird sort of like quasi mullet going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But anti-Trump energy is the reason why Spanberger even had a shot. Mm -hmm. And then to close the gap, you have sort of the bread and butter issues like healthcare, like taxes and so on and so forth. So I think it's, it's both, right? Like voters both want the Democratic Congress or the Democratic House to act as a check on Trump. Um, I think the exit polls say something like, you know, a majority of voters who came out to vote, like Trump is a big factor in their vote. And of those voters, 60% were like, you got to act as a check on Trump. But then they also want to preserve kind of middle-class entitlements and middle-class health benefits um, and the like. I don't think you have to, I don't think there's sort of like a contradiction there. Both are, are in effect, uh, which is why I think it's odd that Democratic leadership in the House has been like, oh, we, we're, we're going to work together with Trump, we're going to, you know, pass infrastructure. <laughs> when will that week come again? Well, I think, um, I, think those, I think those two things sort of go together because if you look at Trump sort of sending a lot of traditionally Republican voters or Republican-leaning voters, uh, you know, window shopping for a new party, Democrats sort of extend this olive branch in the form of, you know, focusing on pre-existing conditions, talk about infrastructure, 
things like that. You know, you're not like hitting the newcomers hard with like abolish ice or whatever. So I, you know, and then I think they're trying to retain these, these districts ahead for the next couple of years. So they sort they sort of have to start the newcomers easy a little bit. It is. It's so adorable to see the sort of Nancy Pelosi being like, we'll be reasonable because that (laughs) works. And you just want to be like, no, it's not going to reasonable. Doesn't, doesn't translate into anything. You just look like suckers. But no, when I, I, but that said, I'm not the like impeach him tomorrow guy. Um, I want to impeach him slowly. But yeah. I do think. Um, and then but, all at once. <laughs> and then really quick. But, um, but I do think that there is something sort of so, I don't know, it just strikes me as this sort of childlike optimism that maybe this time, maybe this time Lucy won't pull the football. <laughs> and separate children from their families at the border. Like, it's just crazy. I have noticed that, yes. All right, guys, that's it. We want to thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you all for coming thank out. You. Thanks for voting. And now the spiel. Who is this Mark Whitaker fellow? Uh, He's an imposing Midwesterner who doesn't believe in Marbury v. Madison, which is to say he doesn't quite buy the idea of judicial precedent. Precedent? There's only one president. I think you know who that is, Donald J. Trump. No, not president. Precedent. Shut up with your words and your consistency. Maybe Mark Whitaker was saying, in saying he doesn't believe in Madison, the Marbury v. Madison. He wasn't talking about James Madison or a Supreme Court case. He was talking about Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. Because as an Iowa Hawkeye, Mark Whitaker would go into Camp Randall Stadium and do battle. What's that? You had not heard that Mark Whitaker was an Iowa Hawkeye football player? Apparently, you don't know Mark Whitaker. A man who does know Mark Whitaker, Bob House, was on Morning Edition today to vouch for his friend's outstanding and upstanding nature. You'll find a man who is got a heart of a lion. Uh, you don't become a tight end with the Big Ten football team and play in the Rose Bowl if you're a shrinking violet. That was an answer to host Rachel Martin's point, which is, you know, he suggested the entire Russia investigation was a left-wing hoax. Great answer, because it's true. Whitaker did play football at Iowa. He did play in the Rose Bowl. He had two receptions and 23 yards. Oh, not in the Rose Bowl, during the entire Rose Bowl season. He had one 10-catch season also, to be fair. That reference to the football experience that forged the man that we know today, it was not the only reference on Morning Edition. I think that if you know Matt, as I and a lot of other people know Matt, uh, you will know that this is, a, this is a man who has a very strong core, uh, again, Harkening back to the 80s, uh, you don't play tight end for the University of Iowa and take the kind of shots and hits that he took and get up, get back in the game uh, if you're not a person that's got a very strong core. So what you're saying is to know a tight end is to know goodness and metal. Tight end is a stand-in for character. Yeah, good morning. Aaron Hernandez went from star tight end for the New England Patriots with a $40 million contract, a fiancé and a new baby to convicted murderer. Okay, fine, but that's Aaron Hernandez. 
He's a member of a totally different team. We're talking about Big Ten football players, specifically Iowa football players. Those guys are unimpeachable. Another Iowa Hawkeye football player facing drug charges just hours before the start of Iowa's final football game of 2010. Oh, okay, okay. One Iowa football player arrested. Darrell Johnson Koulianos became the most prolific wide receiver in Iowa history, catching more passes for more yards than any Hawkeye had ever done. But now his legacy is tarnished thanks to off-the-field activities. Johnson Koulianos made his initial court appearance this morning after being arrested for seven drug-related charges yesterday. Police executing a drug bust on the house he shared. All right, look, this is a stupid line of defense that some other tight end, a non-Iowa tight end, or so that some other non-tight end Iowa player. I mean, the thesis was simple. You play tight end in Iowa, you're a good person. I don't know, maybe, call me crazy, we should talk about the actual individual and the traits he has rather than just the position of tight end in Iowa, because we are talking about Mark Whitaker, a specific Iowa tight end who is a very good guy, and we know he's a good guy because the president vouches for him, as he did when asked about Whitaker on Fox and Friends. One other question, though, in the Washington Post this morning, it says that you talked to the attorney general's chief of staff about replacing the attorney general. Apparently, uh, according to the Post, you talked to Matthew Whitaker, but the conversation was nebulous, they depicted as. It wasn't clear whether you wanted him to replace him on an interim basis or he would be nominated on a more permanent basis. Anything to that story? Well, I never talk about that, but I can tell you Matt Whitaker is a great guy. I mean, I know Matt Whitaker, but I never... Of course he'd say that. He got to know him on his many visits to the Oval Office, which is why when asked about Whitaker today, Trump said this. Well, Matt Whitaker, I don't know Matt Whitaker. Matt Whitaker worked for Jeff Sessions, and he was always extremely highly thought of, and he still is, but I didn't know Matt Whitaker. He worked for... uh, Attorney General Sessions. Wow. Well, at least we've gotten to know Mark Whitaker a little bit. He was an Iowa tight end. He sat on the board of a company that was investigated for a scam. Now, it was a minor scam, so that may actually diminish his standing a little bit in the president's eyes. I don't want no two-bit grifter. Matt, I'd like you to meet Ryan Zinke. Too bad. Tom is gone. So Mark Whitaker questions the entire foundation of judicial precedent. He has publicly proclaimed the Mueller investigation a witch hunt, and he will not be recusing himself. Should he be overseeing the Mueller investigation? No. Should he be possibly investigated by Mueller himself? That was the idea put forward by Chuck Rosenberg, a former U.S. attorney and the former chief of staff to the director of the FBI. He was on the Lawfare podcast yesterday. Well, wouldn't any good prosecutor want to know Um, why Matt Whitaker was picked uh, to act as attorney general in this investigation, given what he's already said about the investigation to CNN and um, uh, elsewhere. Why isn't he a witness? I don't mean that he has obstructed justice. I don't mean that there was a quid pro quo. I simply mean to say that Mueller would have to want to know why Whitaker was picked for this job. So isn't he a witness potentially as well? Can I get a witness? Hell, can I get a qualified, uncompromised attorney general? Can I get a straight story out of Trump? Can I get a break here? The Mueller investigation may be some sort of rigged witch hunt. Hint, it's not. But their defense of this this witchcraft, it is two dunking stools short of a strategy.
That is it for today's show. Pierre Bienname has never met Daniel Schrader, though they both produce the gist. They sit right next to each other. They're good men. DJ Raphael is senior producer for Slate Podcast. She played defense on her high school JV lacrosse team. The state champions. Well, the varsity was. But, you know, that still makes her a moral person, you realize. The gist. Okay, we have fun here in the credits, but I want to report a true fact. In inquiring about TJ's high school lacrosse career, Pierre chimed in saying, I played badminton. And he said the Minton part. I could just see him traipsing around in pursuit of shuttlecocks. And let me tell you, that is what builds character, people. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.